Okay, turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4 in the New Testament. Page 1066 of the Church Bibles. John chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 26. Let's hear God's word. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, women, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit And his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Jesus is the one who meets our deepest needs. That's the big point of this story. It's fascinating the way John has put his gospel together because he has put side by side Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3 with this conversation with the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. And when we consider the two people, they really couldn't be more different. Nicodemus was a man, an influential man, a leading teacher of the law, so one of the religious elite, powerful, influential And then you have this Samaritan woman who belonged to a religion that the Jews 
considered to be a false religion. This is a woman who had no power and influence in her society. In fact, in her community, she was shunned because of her immoral lifestyle. So she lives a very solitary existence. So in every respect, they are entirely different. You've got Nicodemus, very religious. The Samaritan woman, not religious at all. And yet Jesus meets with them both, and he says, you both have the same need. You both need to meet Jesus. You both need to experience God's grace. So he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says to this woman, you need to drink the living water. Jesus is about meeting our deepest needs, which ultimately means he is concerned for our salvation. He's concerned that we get to know the living God. So as we look at this story, that's, that's my hope uh, for each one of, us, one of us, that we will, for ourselves, encounter this living God. Before we get to the conversation, we need to just think very briefly about the context. We see in verses 1 to 3 that Jesus' ministry has been attracting attention. His disciples have been baptizing people as they've become followers of Jesus. This is making the Pharisees, the religious uh, rulers, very unhappy because they're losing popularity. Jesus knows that there's conflict brewing, and so he decides to leave that place. So he decides to move from Judea, which is in the, the south, up to Galilee in the north. And it tells us in verse 4, he had to go through Samaria. And that's because Samaria is kind of slap bang in the middle of Israel. And so the quickest way to go south to north is to go through Samaria. So Jesus is on a journey. We're presented with Jesus as being human here because we see that he's walking in the middle of the day in a very hot country. And so he gets tired and he gets thirsty. So we find him beside a well. In John's gospel, we get this. We get Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the eternal Word of God, but also the fact that this Word became flesh, that He became human, that He can identify with us because He was like us. So Jesus is here sitting at this well, tired, thirsty, and a woman comes along and He begins a conversation. And from this conversation, I want us to think about four uh, different things briefly. Firstly, Jesus breaks down social barriers. We saw that in verse, verses 7 to 9. Jesus says to the woman, can I have a drink, please? And the woman says, well, how can you ask that? Because you're a Jew and you're not supposed to associate with me. There were barriers between Jesus and this woman. Some of you won't be old enough uh, to remember this, but in the uh, either late 80s or early 90s, I can't quite remember, uh, Princess Diana attracted a lot of attention from the world's media because of the way she dealt with uh, victims of HIV AIDS. That at a time when those people who were suffering from the AIDS virus were very much stigmatized in their communities, Princess Diana went to them spoke with them, hugged them, shook their hands, just showed real kindness and compassion, which really helped to break down a lot of those stigmas, that she crossed that barrier that nobody else wanted to cross. Jesus is doing something similar here as he breaks down and crosses social, cultural, religious 
barriers. Jews and Samaritans didn't get on. They had different views of God, different views of the Bible, different views on how to worship, and so they kept their distance. More than that, for most Jews, they thought of a Samaritan woman as somebody who was unclean. So if you had anything to do with a Samaritan woman, you'd be unclean, you wouldn't be allowed to go to worship, and so they kept their distance. But here we see Jesus crossing those barriers, starting a conversation, asking for help. It's fascinating when we consider just what this woman was like. It was normal in that day that the women would go to the well together. It was kind of a social activity, and you would go either at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day when the sun wasn't quite so hot. But here we see this woman who's having to go by herself in the middle of the day. And that's because nobody else wants anything to do with her because of her lifestyle, as we will consider shortly. And so here is Jesus speaking to this woman, asking help for this woman that everybody else, Samaritans and Jews, both thought were unclean. So what's going to happen? Is Jesus going to become unclean because he starts to have a conversation? Well, in actual fact, by the outcome of the story, it's quite the opposite, that Jesus makes this woman clean. Jesus brings salvation to this woman. He did the same with lepers. You know how lepers were on the edge of the community, and they had to ring a bell if anyone came close, and to shout, unclean, unclean, and everybody kept their distance. Jesus spoke with them. Jesus touched them. Jesus healed them. Jesus has the power to make the unclean clean. This woman desperately needs her Savior. She desperately needs an encounter with the living God. And he's not going to let social, cultural, religious barriers get in the way of that. And that's a challenge for us if we are Christians and if you're in the church. Have you either consciously or subconsciously restricted God's grace? As we look around our society, as we look around our communities, are there some people who you've decided, no, they're beyond God's hope? You know, there's some people that are just too bad. God wouldn't want anything to do with them. Have we found ourselves doing that, kind of keeping our distance from certain people? The challenge is to follow Jesus' example. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to become uncomfortable for the sake of bringing the good news to different people? Are we willing to, to go to places, to speak to people who we wouldn't necessarily normally identify with so that we can bring God's love to them? That's what we see Jesus doing here. It's a challenge to us as Christians. It's, a, it's an encouragement to you if you're here today and you're not a Christian. Because some people have the idea that Christianity is just for good people. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, but my past is, is so bad and I've got all these sins and, and I feel really ashamed, like this woman felt ashamed. Well, the message of this is that it doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your background. God's grace, God's kindness through Jesus is available to you today. Forgiveness is being offered to you the same as it was offered to this woman who had a shady past of her own. 
So Jesus breaks down these social barriers. Uh, the next thing we see is that Jesus goes on to, to deal with her deepest needs. Look at verse 10. Jesus says to the woman, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus straight away offers her the gift of God. Jesus is offering her salvation. He's sitting beside a well, they're talking about water, and so he naturally chooses to base a a conversation around water. And he offers salvation, but using this phrase, living water. And the woman misunderstands because she's in a place where water is hard to come by, where water is really valuable, and she hears living water, and she thinks, ah, this guy must have found a fresh flowing stream. So she's thinking, ah, great, a water supply, because if you find a water supply, it could be the means of uh, keeping yourself and your crops and your animals uh, well provided for. So she's thinking physical water. Jesus is thinking Old Testament. Remember the verse uh, that we read with the children in Jeremiah 2? My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is saying, I am offering a supply of love and goodness and justice and mercy and peace. But tragically, Old Testament Israel largely rejected God and his offer. Same as most people in the world largely reject Jesus and his offer of life. We can also think in another prophecy, the prophecy of Zechariah, He was looking forward to the day when God would pour out the Holy Spirit. And Zechariah said, on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. Transforming grace given by God through the Holy Spirit. Eternal life, true satisfaction is pictured by Jesus as being like living water. But the woman misunderstands his point altogether. In verse 11, she says, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? She's skeptical. She says, well, hold on a minute. Jacob, the the patriarch from the Old Testament, he had to search for a long time to try and find this water. And when he found a, a, a stream or whatever he found, they had to get some manpower and they had to get some tools and they had to dig a well. But here's this guy coming along and he doesn't have a bucket for the well. And yet he claims he's got access to living water. So she says, well, are you saying you're better than Jacob? Can you do something that Jacob couldn't do? And Jesus answers and says, well, actually, yeah, I am far better than than Jacob. Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus Jesus can say to the woman, yes, my water is better. What I'm offering to you is better because while Jacob's well is, is fine and good and it can deal with your physical thirst for a while, whenever you drink water, after a while, you need to go back to the well. We need to go back to the tap. We need to get refreshed again. You can only deal with your physical thirst for a little while, but Jesus is looking to deal with our spiritual thirst. 
our thirst for God, our thirst to know the meaning of life. And Jesus is saying, I can satisfy that. Another prophet in the Old Testament, Isaiah, said this in Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? There is this picture of God looking to bring inner transformation, inner satisfaction. God is looking to give a new heart. Jesus comes to this woman and says, this is what I have to offer you. This is what he's saying to us as well. This is what he has to offer to satisfy our deepest needs, our deepest longings, the deep thirst that we have for God. But the woman still isn't understanding. She's still thinking in physical terms. So in verse 15, she says, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She thinks, well, this is great. If, if, if there's an alternative water supply, then I won't need to keep making this journey out to the well, which reminds me of my loneliness, which reminds me of my humiliation and my shame. This is brilliant if there's a new water supply. That's all I need. I just need something to, you know, kind of, kind of hide my shame for a little while. But, but Jesus is, is saying to her, I'm offering something far deeper than that. Jesus is saying what you and I need most, what this woman needed most, was a relationship with the living God. This Samaritan woman was worshipping the idea that she could find satisfaction from relationships, from um, getting married. And Jesus is saying, no, you will only find true and lasting satisfaction when you get to know the living God. So if you're a Christian here today, let me just ask you, are you finding your deepest satisfaction comes from the good news about who Jesus is and what he has done for you? Do you find your identity your sense of values, your sense of joy and peace? Do you find that your hope is bound up with who Jesus is, why he came, and what that means to you? I ask that because sometimes the the cares of, of life, the troubles that we face, or just the busyness of life can come between us and God. Just as with any water supply, it can get clogged up quite easily. So a well can very quickly get filled with mud and with moss and various things, and it's no good. That we can find that that we can block off the source of our joy in our life because we allow things to come between us and the living God. So let me just ask you, where do you go for joy? Is your contentment, is your peace bound up in the fact that Jesus came to live that perfect life that you couldn't live to satisfy God's law? Is your joy found in the fact that Jesus went to the cross as your substitute to take the anger that you deserve for your sins so that you could be forgiven? Is your hope based on the fact that Jesus rose again and has returned to glory with the promise that he will come again to make all things new so that his people will be with him. That's where joy and satisfaction is found in the Christian life. 
If you're not a Christian, let me ask you to consider where you have looked for satisfaction. We are by nature worshippers. We're all looking to find value and significance in something. If we don't go to God, then we'll choose something else. We can see that in, even in the media this week. Did you see the, um, after the whole uh, looking into Rangers uh, football club's financial plight, there were the Rangers supporters who were sending death threats uh, to those who placed the transfer embargo on the club. How would you explain such a decision? How would you explain somebody willing to face jail um, just because their club was in a bit of bother? It's because we're programmed to worship. There are people that are worshipping their football clubs. There are people that are worshipping their careers or basing their hopes and their life around their family or their educational performance. Where have you looked to find satisfaction? Can I suggest to you from God's word that nothing else is big enough to meet your deep, eternal, spiritual needs apart from a relationship with the living God. And so just as Jesus offered the fresh, living water to this woman, so he offers it to each one of us. He says, choose me, choose life, choose what can satisfy. Thirdly, Jesus confronts this woman's sin. The woman is at a point where she's recognized her physical thirst, but Jesus wants to show that she has spiritual thirst as well. So he says to her in verse 16, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say that. You've had five. The person you're living with now is not your husband. Here is a woman who was worshiping relationships, worshiping marriage, thinking this would be the key to her happiness and her joy and her satisfaction. So when one didn't work, she went to the next. And she cycled through six different guys without any success. She still hasn't found satisfaction. Instead, she's found loneliness and despair. She's all alone within her community. And so Jesus very gently, but very honestly, wants to confront her on her sin and says, you know, bring your husband. Let's have a conversation together. And the woman wants to avoid uh, Jesus probing and says, I have no husband. She wants to stop this conversation. She doesn't want to be confronted with her hurt and her guilt. But you know, Jesus needs to confront her sin to expose her need. If she doesn't realize that she's got a problem, then she won't look to Jesus as the one who can fix it. And that's important for us to remember as a church in a day and age when talking about sin is really kind of taboo in our society, that talking to people honestly but graciously about their sin is is so important for that same reason, because if we don't tell people that there's a holy God who is angry because of our disobedience, then people will think, well, basically I'm okay. Basically, I don't have a problem. And so then why would anyone bother with Jesus, the message of the cross, the message of forgiveness of sins? So we need the message of sin. We need to lovingly confront people with it. It's also a reminder to us as Christians that that Jesus takes sin seriously, and so, so should we. 
So our lives are to be characterized by repenting from our sin. That we're not to take sin lightly, but instead we're told to wage war against our sin. We're supposed to be in a battle so that we're living holy lives. And so this is a reminder to us that sin matters to God. And again, if you're not a Christian here today, it's a reminder to you that your most fundamental need is to have your sins dealt with, to be forgiven by God. Some people might think, well, if only God would give me a little bit more money, then I'd be happy to stop at that. Or if only God would give me health, or if only I had a good stable job or or a nice family, then that's that's all I need from God. That would be enough. But, But Jesus is saying, no, you need something more fundamental than that. You need to have your sins dealt with. So Jesus confronts her sin. And finally, fourthly, Jesus directs her to true worship. Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. As the conversation goes on, this woman is thinking, wow, there's something different about this man. He's speaking with a real authority and real insight. He must be some kind of prophet. And so as the prophet, he asks the big burning theological question of the day. And that question is, where does God want to be worshipped? That was the big question, the big point of conflict between Jews and Samaritans. Because you had the Jews on the one hand who had the whole Old Testament, and so they read in the Old Testament that God told Solomon to build a temple in Jerusalem for worshipping God, and so they said, Jerusalem's the place where God wants to be worshipped. But then you've got the Samaritans, on the other hand, who only accepted the first five books of the Bible. And so they looked into those first five books and they were thinking, well, where, where do we get clues in the first five books as to where God wants to be worshipped? And they decided on this mountain called Gerizim. And they decided that for two reasons. In Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham has just been given great promises by God of a, of a great nation, that would be his descendants, and to receive the promised land, he tells Abraham to go to the promised land, and so he arrives, and God speaks to him and and says to him, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so Abraham builds an altar to the Lord, worships God. Where does this happen? Happens on Mount Gerasim. So the Samaritans are thinking, yeah, Mount Gerasim, that's the place where God meets with Abraham, so that's where he should be worshipped. And then again, Just before the people are about to arrive in the promised land, God gives instructions and he says, well, when you get into the promised land, what you're supposed to do is gather all Israel together into the valley underneath Mount Gerizim, tells us this in Deuteronomy 11, and somebody is going to go up to the top of Mount Gerizim and shout the covenant promises from God down to the people to remind them, you're God's people, this is God's land. And so they've concluded Mount Gerasim, that's the place where God wants to be worshipped. And so Jesus is asked, Jerusalem, Mount Gerasim, which is it to be? And Jesus says, well, you know what? The question is obsolete. Verse 21. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus says the time is coming, literally the hour is coming. When you hear the hour in John's gospel, you know something significant is being spoken of. Whenever Jesus uses that phrase, he's talking about the time of uh, Jesus' suffering, 
his death, his resurrection, and his return to glory. That's the hour. So Jesus is saying, the hour is coming. So the cross is coming. And when the cross comes, when Jesus dies on the cross, there is a new direction in worship. Worship is now to the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells her that he is bringing in a new age of worship, worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says to her in verse 24, God is spirit. God is invisible. We can't know God unless God makes himself known to us. Jesus comes, the eternal son of God becomes a man to reveal God to us. And what he says is that because of what I have come to do, Worship is now being completely transformed. Our worship is centered on Jesus Christ. It's centered on his finished work of the cross and the resurrection. This woman, she she gets a sense that she is now talking to somebody really significant. Verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. This guy is obviously talking in messianic terms, she's thinking, and then Jesus drops this bombshell. I who speak to you am he. She's now come to realize that this man that she's having a conversation with is none other than God the Son, the Savior of the world, come to bring hope and salvation to everybody. And he's saying worship is now based around him. So as a church, As Christians, we don't point people to ourselves. We don't feel good about ourselves or say to people, well, just follow my moral example. Just try to be a good person like me and you'll be fine. We don't point people to the church and say, well, so long as your attendance is good and so long as you read your Bible occasionally and so long as you put money into the plate, then you'll be fine. As Christians, we do what Jesus does. We point to him. Our worship is Christ-centered. Our hope is Christ-centered. And so we point people to Jesus. If you're not a Christian here today, maybe one of the things that's put you off is that you've been sold this myth that Christianity is all about rules and regulations, that Christianity is for the good people or for those that think they're better than everybody else, that it's all about achieving a certain standard of goodness. And what Jesus does is he explodes that myth and he says, it's got nothing to do with that because it's all about getting to know me. Jesus says Christianity is all about a relationship with him. Each one of us in here, we have a quest for meaning, for satisfaction. All of us want to feel that we understand what life is all about. We're looking to find the answers. And what Jesus is saying to this woman and to each one of us is that those answers are found in meeting with Jesus, in discovering who he is, why he came, and receiving that living water that he offers to, receiving that salvation that he offers to us at the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to meet our deepest needs. Sometimes we think all we need is a little bit of money or Uh, some friends or or a family or career stability and we'll be all right. But thank you that you came to teach us that fundamentally we were made to know our creator God and that you are the way uh, by which we can come into that relationship with our creator God. So help each one of us here 
to look to Jesus to meet their uh, deepest needs. Help each one of us to find our real hope and our real identity in Jesus and the fact that he came to love us and to die for us, to give us this hope of eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.